Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. You'll get the context in a bit, but for now, boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy, boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy, giddy and foolish all day long, boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy. This is episode number 80. What's up, my fellow crazy person? I know, hey, you might not want to be labeled as crazy. We are all crazy in our own ways. That's not a bad thing. At least uh, I hope you're a little bit crazy. I believe we all need a healthy dose of the foolishness to see our dreams, grab a few of them, and keep everyone else wondering just a little bit about us. Let me add this, though. I am super duper grateful that you have me cranked up right now, and no, listening to this show is not one of your foolish acts. Uh, Well, at least not in the short term, and especially if your iTunes handle is, is the Liz. Liz, thanks for the seriously groovy iTunes review you left for me, and it goes a little something like this. Smart and Simple Matters is incredibly insightful, inspiring content. I love Joel's questions and the guests he curates. I have been addicted to these podcasts for the past month or so, and they have really inspired a major shift in my life. Bada bing, bada boom, Liz. It's kind words like yours that inspire me to keep at it. Keep thinking up foolish questions from my guests that nobody else would ask and keep you addicted to my curating style. Thanks again. Okay, I have a quick announcement to hit you with before moving on. I've started getting into the wonderful world of webinars, and I've been doing them as the host of Simple Rev Organized Shindigs. I will be hosting another webinar with Courtney Carver of Be More With Less, who I featured way back in episode six of the show. That's going down August 13th, 2015 at 10.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time. We're calling it Goodbye Busy. Three ways to reconnect with what matters most. And frankly, it's going to be rad. Want to join me and Courtney live or catch the free replay? Registration takes mere seconds, and you can do it at simplerev.com slash webinar. I may actually run some Smart and Simple Matters related webinars down the line, but I have not, really, I don't have any idea what you'd want the topics to be or whether you'd want me to go solo, invite somebody special to join me, and all that jibber-jabber. If you have thoughts about me and webinars, get in touch via the normal connection points, like in the show notes for this episode at valueofsimple.com slash SASM080 on Twitter or wherever else we both hang out. You'll also notice a link to SimpleRev 2015 event tickets in the show notes for this episode because we still have some tickets left for the grooviness in Minneapolis on October 2 and 3, 2015. I know I'm saying things weird today. What's new? 
You can score your Simple Rev 2015 ticket at simplerev.com slash tickets. Boy, <laughs> that was a lot of stuff I already hit you with. Moving along. You and I, we can agree that skills are important. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills, those kinds of skills. Because as my guest and I know, girls only like guys who have great skills. (laughs) Napoleon Dynamite, anybody? I hope you're getting it. Oh, my goodness. But you know what? super sweet? My guest, Cliff Hodges, actually has wicked bow hunting skills. He actually has wicked bow hunting skills. Can you believe that? He even makes his own bow and arrows. I haven't gotten all primal up in here since episode 60 when I interviewed Mark Sisson of Mark's Daily Apple. And man, was that a great chat. But I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Cliff about our ancestral heritage, the preservation of ancient skills, and reconnecting with nature. Plus, you'll never guess which of the 30-ish ways to start a fire with friction we cover. I know, rack your mind about it. Not going to guess. Got to listen. Our conversation is as practical, factual, and inspirational as you're going to get on this show. And uh, you may have some fun listening to. Wouldn't that be a first? Having fun listening to Smart and Civil Matters? Do we do that? Wait, yeah, I think we do. Uh, so what do you say? Let's go crazy. Let's get nuts. Oh, no, let's go. Um, wait, I mean, here we go. Smart and Simple Matters crew, welcome. It's about to get freaking rad, fun, and real in here. That's because I have Cliff Hodges as my guest for this one, a guy who's all about cultivating environmental stewardship. He's the founder and CEO of Adventure Out, California's largest outdoor school and guide service. Plus, he co-hosts the National Geographic Channel TV show, Remote Survival. As a wilderness survival instructor and outdoor adventure guide and environmental advocate, Cliff knows how to, say, climb a mountain, surf a big wave, and immerse himself in an indigenous culture. And when he's not making an impact on the board of several not-for-profit organizations, he's tearing it up CrossFit-style at two boxes that he runs. Welcome to the show, Cliff. It's awesome to have you along for a different kind of ride today. Thanks, Joel. Uh, It's great to be here. All right, well, we're going to start where I normally start a show, which is with something I call the seeds of awesomeness, so that people can understand you a little bit better, Cliff, and get to know why cool. you've come to be the guy that you are. Could you tell us about one or two experiences that you had growing up, or maybe even something about your environment as a youth that helps us understand why you are who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was really lucky. I grew up with a uh, two wonderful, loving parents who also really valued the outdoors. Um, they weren't, I wouldn't say they were as adventurous as I am, but they they really uh, made it a priority to get my sister and I out into the wilderness, out into the woods, out into the ocean uh, as much as possible when we were kids. And you know, I had a lot of very formative experiences in the in the outdoors that I think led me to 
do what I do for a living, which is take people into the wilderness and help them create a connection with nature. But probably one of the, the most, uh, really formative and important experiences in my life was between the ages of from about 13 to 17, I spent a couple months every summer in Sequoia National Forest up in the Southern Sierra Nevada. And my parents encouraged me to go and I actually worked part time at a summer camp up there. So kind of a real traditional American story spending a summer at summer camp, but I spent a couple months each summer up at about 7,500, 8,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada by a lake, going on hikes, um, teaching people naturalist skills, and uh, just really being fully immersed in California wilderness. And, and that experience, I always look back on it as, as some of the best times of my life, and I think really made me who I am. Yeah, well, I'm not accustomed to having, say, a 13-year-old teach wilderness or survival skills to other... Were you teaching them to other kids? were younger than you were up at this camp? Both kids and adults. I was, well, I mean, at that age, I was basically an assistant um, counselor instructor. There were, I think the, the camp room was not run by teenagers. But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, there were adult counselors and instructors there, but I was there um, as, as a teenager, as an assistant uh, counselor and instructor. And so that's that was my job, was to teach different wilderness skills and outdoor school uh, skills to both children and adults that came as guests. How did you learn those skills initially? Uh, I, I learned them, one, just by, by being there, and two, really just spending time in the outdoors. So, uh, I mean, my parents were taking me camping since I was since I could walk. Um, I've been surfing and rock climbing since I was about eight years old. And uh, just always, it's kind of, I never went to a school. That's part of the reason why... I started my school as I felt like there was a real need for that kind of program, but I just learned by doing as a, as a young child. Okay. And it sounds like you mentioned that your parents were not as adventurous as you are, and we're going to get into some of the adventurous things that you do, but when your parents took you out camping and you were just out there in nature, and not that nature is exactly <clears throat> separate from us, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit too, uh, what kind of experiences were they giving you since it wasn't you know, surfing the big waves or taking these massive um, mountain climbs? Were there typical experiences that you had, or it was just a hodgepodge of a little this, a little that? mostly just being out there. And I think that's something that really is parents is, is such an important thing to do. I'm not myself yet a parent, but, um, you know, a huge part of it at any age is just creating the time and space to be outside and be in nature. You know, so many people are always asking me, you know, what can I do? What skills can I learn? And there's definitely tons of great skills to learn and activities to, to take up. But, half of the battle is just getting out there and, and creating time and space to experience it. So they weren't, my parents weren't mountain climbers or surfers the way I am, but they, they loaded up the car and loaded up all the gear and took us out for days or weeks on end and just set up camp. And my sister and I were free to explore and interact with nature and really learn very experientially out there. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky I had that experience and, very much encourage that to to parents all, all over. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with you there. Do you think part of it though? So growing up in Santa Cruz, you got the Pacific Ocean, 
you have the mountains, you have forests. I mean, you have all these diverse landscapes and all these different kinds of experiences, either like out your back door or within miles of where you live. For folks who live, say, in the center of the U.S., like me, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, there's lakes and there's lots of really cool things around here, but it's totally flat. Uh, there's no ocean. Uh, there aren't any mountains around here. Do you think part of your experience is because of where you grew up or is this kind of mindset that you cultivated and your parents cultivated for you is this something that anybody can have i you know i really believe it's something anyone can have i think of course my experience is a california experience because that's where i grew up and so i am more familiar with the sierra nevadas and the pacific ocean than i am with the you know plain states in the south but, you know, one of the things we are so lucky to have in this country is so much open space and public lands. And I think most, um, you know, most Americans don't don't really take advantage of it and don't even understand that that's not something you necessarily have in other parts of the world. A lot of a lot of parts of the world land is private or government and we don't have as much access to it as we do. But every state in this country has parks and open spaces and BLM land and national forests. And that's something that is our right to go out and enjoy. And I think, um, I think people need to start taking more advantage of that. BLM Bureau of land management. Did I get that right? Yep. Bureau of land management. Yeah. Good. uh, The acronym, sometimes they mystify me. Glad I nailed that one. Well, cool. Yeah. BLM lands are kind of like, uh, depending on where they are, can kind of be like slightly more lawless national forests. They're just, uh, a lot of times they're very huge open spaces that are um, sort of very minimally monitored. So there's a lot of really great wilderness opportunities on BLM land throughout the country. Yeah, well, I, I expect as much. I mean, it's little known, at least I know when you talk to folks a lot. I mean, you are, from a traditional education perspective, you've got some serious creds uh, behind your name. Uh, and I know that's not the focus, but using that, you spend a lot of time in the city as well. So yeah, when- Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So I do, yeah, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree from MIT. So I studied electrical engineering. Um, both my bachelor's and master's are in electrical engineering. I, I very know what much what it's like to um, kind of live on the other side of the coin and be in the city, be in an office building and be working kind of in that environment pretty much 24-7. And uh but even then, you know, even in even at MIT on the weekends, I'd get outside in places like New Hampshire, we're just a 30 minute drive away. And there was a, an enormous amount of uh, wilderness and opportunity not far from Boston either. So uh, it is accessible. So, yeah, you did have a lot of opportunity right around Boston. You're an MIT product. And as far as I know, that goes a pretty long way with a lot of folks. So how does, how, how do you, I was going to talk in third person, I'm like, don't talk in third person, Joel. Now I'm talking in second person by myself. <laughs> but how do you end up back in Santa Cruz after you're educated? Your first year of adventure out, I was doing a little bit of research for this chat. You were living and working out of your childhood bedroom. How does something like that happen I was. when you were starting your biz? Yeah, talk about a great way to meet ladies and get a date. Um, <laughs> hey, I, that's what I did, too, when I, when I moved back. Oh, I that spent worked, a fair that, amount of time in my parents' house, too. Worked wonders for me back then. Uh, not really. But, yeah, how did I end up doing what I do? And, you know, MIT was, it was an absolutely amazing experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's, 
definitely a question I get all the time is people say, dude, do you feel like you just wasted all that? You went to one of the best schools in the world for five years, got two degrees, and now you're playing around in the woods for a living. Um, <laughs> but that, I mean, I'd say more than anything, a degree in engineering and especially a degree from MIT was a degree in problem solving. And the, the skills I learned there, the ability to solve problems. I mean, that's what running a small business is. That's what wilderness survival is, is problem solving. And I think I learned really amazing critical thinking skills and problem solving skills there that I can apply to anything, whether it is in the realm of electrical engineering or in the outdoors. Um, so first, no, I did not waste it. (laughs) Secondly, um, the way I ended up getting into what I was doing is I moved back to California. I graduated with my master's and I moved from Boston back to Santa Cruz. Um, and pretty much immediately got a job in the, in the industry as an electrical engineer and started working in the field. And I think, you know, my first job was, uh, real, just a real typical Silicon Valley office space kind of job. I was in a cubicle in a basement and wouldn't see the sun for days on end in the wintertime. And I, for me, I just decided that there was something, I needed something different. And that was kind of like the mind spring of it all is I felt like, well, geez, if I need something different, a lot of these people need something different. And that was the aim of my program from the beginning was to reach people like myself that were in that situation and needing help to get outside. And so I really built my school and guide service around working professionals, people in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit. To help to get outside. So you shift from electrical engineering to making different kinds of sparks fly. Uh, Fire by friction, for example, which is there's some really cool videos that you have on your site of people doing it, doing it super quick. So bringing it back to basics, uh, or maybe at least your basics, I, I was just... It seems like, to me, from what I know about you, there's nothing that you love more than seeing people reconnect to nature. Uh, There's a lot of questions that are spinning in my mind right now, but I guess the first one, from a broad strokes, painting that broad picture, why do you just absolutely love seeing people reconnect to nature? I I mean, I think there's so many ways I could answer that, but at the root of it, I think it's, it takes them back to their roots, back to their childhood. It, it reminds them that they are human. I think we as people are animals on this planet like every other animal. And the fact that we feel scared and afraid to go out in the woods and take care of ourselves isn't that we weren't endowed with those same skills and that same intuition as every other animal on this planet. We just forgotten how. And so, I feel like I'm helping people reconnect with being human, and that is such like an amazing experience. Yeah, uh, and about the experience, so you get somebody like me, maybe even a, a city slicker. I've lived in the city pretty much all my life, and although I'm really interested in survival skills and uh, just exploring my world, I'm I'm still pretty primitive when it comes to my ability to exist. Uh, outdoors as just a wild animal, which I've come to think of myself as uh, as a wild animal who's been domesticated significantly. So from a a sensory experience, you get somebody like me who comes into one of your programs. Uh, How do people react after, say, the first day of just being totally immersed in nature? What's a typical uh, reaction or experience that somebody has? Well, yeah, you know, there's 
with some people, there can be sort of initial resistance. I think uh, it takes a little while to settle in and slow down and, and move at the, at the pace of nature. We're so used to the rat race, right? Where we're go, 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 to-do lists a mile long and a million and one stresses. And sometimes there's a little bit of resistance. People need to let go of, of that pace and that heartbeat and, and slow down a little bit. But, you know, what I what I start to see after that first day is people just giving in to being and existing and there isn't a rush and there seems to be a flow and a lack of stress and people laugh more and they talk more and they slow down and they actually notice what's going on around them instead of just what they need to get done that day. And, you know, it's a complete and utter shift. I think it's where we as humans need to go to recharge our batteries. Some people just don't have that opportunity. Yeah, moving at the pace of nature. That's kind of a cool way to look at it. And it's also, I talk about this too, my ancestral heritage as a human being uh, and the preservation of that, knowing where I've come from and also making sure that that's a part of where I'm going and that's part of every human being. I think you're helping people um, acknowledge it but also maintain it in a very practical way. The kind of programs that you guys offer through Adventure Out, camping, a day hike, and some rock climbing, I know as some people start to get into it more, they're physically exerted, they're slowing down, um, they're having more deep conversations because they're not looking at their watch, they don't have their smartphone in front of them all the time. This reprioritization of thought. Do, do folks end up telling you after this program, like, get me in another one pronto? I can't believe that it's taken me so freaking long to do this thing. I got to do it again immediately. They do, and it's, it's usually like... <laughs> I need to come back and I need to bring my family or I need to bring my friends or my parents or whoever. So it's usually like, this was so special for me. I know so many other people who need this. I think people immediately want to share it because it does really have that feeling of being universal. It doesn't feel like, Oh, this is only for some people. This is only for a certain kind of people, but people get out there. And like I said, they feel human again. And they think, wow, everybody needs, this. How do you have that conversation, though? Say somebody is, they're totally content with their existing life. Um, I come on one of your programs, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. And I go back home, and I say, dude, mom, dad, sister, brother, you know, kids, we're, you, you got to come out with me. This is the most amazing thing. And they say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm good here. I'm good here. I like the comforts of civilization. I'm good here. What's uh? Do you have one or two tips or go-to techniques that you use in, in rolling people in this vision of what they could be if they stopped, they got out of their box that they live in and drive in and just get themselves out there and learn some new things? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the, the two tips I have on that, one is start small. If you have someone who's resistant to it, don't try to get them to sign up for like a week-long program. <laughs> you know, get them... Get them to do a day, just a single day out. If they haven't really been camping or out in the woods or in the wilderness in years, uh, don't try to overdo it. Get them to commit to something really short and easy. And for the first time out, take you know, bring some things that make it comfortable for them. If it means bringing a bottle of wine and having a glass of wine and a picnic out in the woods before you try to convince them to go on a hike. Uh, you know, do something like that, bring a game to play out at the beach before, you know, spending longer, longer times out at the coast. So I really 
you know, you got to ease people into it. People are, as humans, we're so good at having our patterns and setting our ways that um, I definitely never forced it upon anyone. I just, if there's people who are resistant, you try to make it just that much more familiar to them to help ease them into it. Right on. Well, one thing that I remember you saying in, uh, you had an interview with Pedram Soje for the origin film, uh, Summit Series. I watched the film. It's awesome. I'm going to link to Thanks. your conversation with Pedram in the show notes for this episode. But one thing that really struck me, you're talking about people finally feeling like stakeholders in, in their local area, but also in the world, just by simply being outdoors, experiencing some discomfort and getting comfortable with discomfort. Uh, it's kind of almost yeah. like they become um, globally aware and a citizen of of their world for the first time. They care. They uh, what was it? You're talking about something. People hear about a state park closing, and they they say to themselves, "Oh heck no, that's not happening on my watch." Like you're not going to go destroy where I go for my weekly hike, or you're not going to uh, restrict my access to uh, these primal places that make me feel more alive than I can anywhere else. I really liked how you were talking about that piece, and I guess this pattern that a lot of us, at least in Western culture, have of spending almost our, our entire lives indoors driving to work yeah that's an enclosed environment working in a temperature controlled building that's an enclosed environment maybe driving back home in that same car we're eating inside we crank up the tv we fall asleep indoors in a bed uh, none true. of these things exactly resemble our life as humans for 99.999 percent of our existence is there part of its mindset of course is you have to be open to something different you have to be open to getting out in the open but is there a go-to way that you have beyond what you do with Adventure Out to really break this pattern of just spending all of our time indoors? I wouldn't say I have a go-to pattern. Everybody's different. I just, it's what you were saying about making people feel like stakeholders. That's, that's my goal. That's my life's mission. That's, that's what I'm trying to do every single day. People, sometimes people, occasionally I have, you know, a cynic or a doubter who who, when I tell people I do environmental work, they say, you, you don't do environmental work. People pay you to take them surfing and rock climbing. How do you do environmental work? <laughs> and you're just having fun. And, and, <laughs> you um, are, which is great. And I am. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, um, you know, to me, that is some of the most important environmental work you can do because you can, you know, you can scream at people till you're blue in the face. You can grab them by the collar and tell them they need to recycle and they need to, we need to look for alternative energy sources and we need to protect open space. And if, and if all that means nothing to them, if they don't spend time in nature, they don't know the damage that landfills and clear cutting does to our environment and, and what harvesting oil from our planet does to our environment, if they don't have any frame of reference for that, it is meaningless to them. Why the parking lot or a forest? But when you get them outside and get them recreating and enjoying that space and realizing just how much of a part of their life it can be and how unique it is, then you're, you're creating legions of environmentalists as opposed to being one person out there just screaming at people. So I think really if, if you share the same views as me, if you're someone like myself and you're not sure how to fight that battle, the best thing you can do is to just get people outside, mm -hmm. give them a reason to do it, whether it's rock climbing or, or drinking wine or whatever it is, come up with something on 
the spectrum there that gets the people you love and care about outside so that we have more people that want to protect this place. That's a cool perspective. You can't love what you never experience. So I, I love New Zealand. Yeah. I love the glaciers. I love the forest. It's because I've been there. It's because I've walked through it. I've seen it. I've hiked the Tongariro Crossing. I mean, that was hard, going up Hell's Stair- Staircase. They call it Hell's Staircase for a reason. I mean, that is a, is a difficult one. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it, and I, and I really enjoy telling people about the experience. Uh, had I just seen pictures and watched YouTube videos, I'd have an affinity for it. It would seem kind of cool, yeah. but would I feel like a stakeholder? Like, would if I hear on the news that something is happening in New Zealand, like an earthquake in um, Christchurch, I feel a resonance. I feel an emotional tie to it, uh, and that's because I've experienced yeah. it. So I totally get where you're coming from there. This this whole so surfing and fire making by friction, uh, a couple other things like um, carving a, a branch to make a bow. All of these different mm-hmm. skills as a path, the entry point towards this reconnection to nature. And I'm pretty sure that any parents of kids like I used to be, which I was a minor pyro, maybe a major pyro. Yeah. I guess it depends on how you classify that. I'll let my parents decide whether I was major or minor. They probably won't appreciate me asking, but nine-year-old Joel has got to know, just from purely a skills perspective, what are the steps to create fire with friction? Can you just tell us real quick? Oh man, <laughs> my, my cre- yeah, my creating a thousands of people that are going to go out and start forest fires. Um, you can defer. Yeah, so you I, can abstain. It, you don't have no, to. No, no. It's, it's, it's such an amazing skill. It's it's a, it's it's a beautiful skill. You know, when when I teach survival, like the main core of survival is shelter, water, fire, and food. And the fascinating thing about fire is it is the one thing that's uniquely human. So other animals on the planet need shelter and water and food, but fire really is the one thing that humans learn to create and control differently than every other planet, uh, every other animal on this planet. And I think that's really the beginning of why we are different. Um, And so there's a lot of different methods of fire by friction. There's over 30 that have been found by uh, anthropologists, archaeologists in, in different forms throughout the planet. And the one that I teach most often is called the bow drill fire. It's a more advanced um, primitive fire technique and it involves creating a small bow that moves one piece of wood like a cylinder against a flat piece that lays on the ground. Um, and uh, to, I mean, to walk you through the steps on this podcast would take several episodes of this podcast. Okay. Um, It'd be a little tough, but, you know, if if people are really wanting to get into it, definitely come study with me, but also look up. There's tons of resources online if you look up Bow Drill Fire, and it is one of your best bets in a survival scenario. So if you're trying to look for a method of fire by friction, in case you end up in the woods, try to learn Bow Drill Fire. It's it's fascinating, and it shows up all over the world and in archaeological sites. It's one of the better th- 30 ways, though. 30 different ways to create fire by friction. Wow. I had no idea. Uh, that's yeah. inspiring stuff. It's very cool when you look at her early human innovation. It's just fascinating to look at the tools and sort of primitive machinery that we created as people, you know, where the fire makers, where the tool builders, where that one animal on this planet is so different because we have that ability to innovate and create and all those, all these cool old methods of fire by friction and cool 
primitive traps and things that we made out of very just natural and basic materials is so impressive. Right on. Well, speaking of inspiring stuff, I'm, I'm curious, who inspires you? Do you have a couple of your friends with a similar mission statement, whether it's helping people fall back in love with nature or just the preservation of it, who you would recommend? I mean, obviously, we want people, you're, you're the focus here, and I want people to go deep in the world of Cliff, but are you sure. routinely inspired by one or two people who either not necessarily inform what you do or why you do what you do, but just fascinate and inspire the heck out of you? Yeah, absolutely. One of my greatest inspirations is also one of my best friends, and uh, his name is Bill McConnell. And Bill uh, runs a program called the Past Skills Wilderness School out of Bozeman, Montana. And uh, Bill is one of the best uh, primitive bowyers and flint nappers um, I've ever encountered. I actually just was visiting him in Montana about a week or two ago. And Bill builds primitive bows, um, primitive arrows, stone point arrows, uh, better than anyone I've ever known in my life. And every time I get a chance to spend time with him, I, I jump at the opportunity because I get to go into his sort of laboratory and walking through his home is like walking through a museum, just a catalog of ancient skills, replicated bows and arrows from every single culture in North America, every single indigenous culture in North America. And he's, you know, he's actually currently working on a book to catalog all of that. And so, yeah, Bill McConnell is one of my best friends and greatest inspirations because he takes the concept of sort of stone age tools and stone age weaponry to the next level. I think more than anyone else alive right now. And any excuse to get to the Bozeman area is always a good one. Uh, my cousin it's always is, a good excuse, and he, he and I always have fun hanging out and hunting and just doing Montana stuff. I, I've only been there once. My cousin lived in Bozeman for a number of years. He just moved to Kitsibu, Alaska, which is... Well, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's not close, at least not to most things. No. <laughs> uh, and I actually, I called him uh, my indigicus, my indigenous cousins, because he was one with the land. When it comes to, I mean, there's guys like you who inspire me to get out there, to learn more, to be able to exist better in nature, to be more comfortable in it, but... My cousin Steve was my original inspiration for, you know, being one with the land, this, this indigenous cousin of mine. Bill sounds amazing, though. I'm, I'm hoping for a number of reasons to get back to Bozeman, but that's another one. You mentioned real quick. Yeah, Bill, Bill's awesome, and hopefully he'll be getting that book out soon, and uh, yeah. the rest of the world will be able to see all the amazing stuff he's got going on. You talk about these primitive bows and arrows that Bill makes, and I heard you say you make bows and arrows as well, and I think each bow you make takes, what, like 60-plus hours of work, and each arrow takes 10 to 20 hours? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's about right. You know, each each one, each style is different and each piece of material is different. So you're really working with the material and trying to understand the way it's speaking to you. But yeah, countless hours of work. I think you just about nailed it. Probably a good anywhere from 50 to 60 hours in a bow, 10 hours in an arrow. And, you know, I'm actually standing in my house right now staring at a stack of like 15 bows in the corner. So you're looking at thousands of hours of work over there and uh it's a it's a labor of love you know i mean you could definitely go out and buy a rifle or a compound bow if you want to go hunting but i think this is really the most sort of special and sacred way to to be a part of that tradition why 
special and sacred way. I mean, if for me, if I'm hunting a deer, I take my gun out and I shoot it. Boom, it's done. Um, I sure I still need to track it and I need to be quiet, but why why do you have such a deep connection with the animal that you're taking? And I know from your perspective, like you don't hunt for sport. You just hunt whenever you want to take an animal because you're planning on eating it. So what's the difference yeah. between killing an animal with a bow and arrow that you made yourself versus taking a rifle out and shooting it? I would say to boil it down to two words, I'd say respect and sacrifice. So I am showing respect to that life that I'm taking by making a sacrifice. I'm sacrificing my time and my effort and my life to do this. So I, like I say, you know, countless hours making the bow, collecting the materials, making the arrowheads, putting the arrows together. And then even with that, you have a piece of weaponry that really a primitive bow and arrow that I make, I'm really only accurate within about 20 yards, preferably I'm more like eight to 10 yards. So I spend countless hours tracking, stalking, watching, waiting, learning the landscapes that I'm hunting in before I ever even release an arrow. So in, in my view, I'm, I'm honoring that animal's life by making a huge commitment, a huge sacrifice of my own time to do it in a very traditional manner. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to this preservation of our heritage and understanding what it is and, and realizing that there are certain things that are sacred, whether they're a tree, Absolutely. Whether, it's a deer, whether it's a body. And, you know, and it's a part of everyone. I think that's one thing that I really try to impress upon students over and over again is sometimes people say, oh, well, this is something the Native Americans did. And it's like, well, yeah, they did because, and that's kind of what we associate it with because we are here in North America. But no matter who you are and where you're from, no matter where you trace your ancestry back to, you're a human being. You're directly descendant from people that lived in earthen shelters, started fire by friction, hunted with stone tools and primitive weaponry, all humans. It's not just one particular culture that, that practice these skills. Yeah. I got to ask you now, because this is a question that I've been asking more and more to people about this concept of simple living and what it means to each person. Now, your concept of simple living, let me, I'll, just, I'll just ask you, I won't beat around the bush at all. When you hear those words, when you hear about simple living, what does that mean to you? <laughs> Less things on my checklist today. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> My concept of simple living would be to live in, it's actually what I'm trying to create where I live right now, to be able to live in a place where I can sustain myself, I can farm and work the land, I can hunt and forage for wild edibles and wild game. Um, I can live in a much more traditional manner and just be a human reduce stress, not be part of the rat race. That, that for me is simple living and that's what I'm after. Right on, man. I think that's what a lot of people are after. You are pretty far down that path and I have a feeling there's a lot of folks who want to follow you, but in their own way. It's, it's always great, you know, whether it's through uh, growing your own food, which I know you do, foraging for your own food, just uh, being in harmony with the landscape that's around you. I'm glad that uh, you've kind of found your niche and that you're living it as opposed to just dreaming about it. There's a lot of us, myself included some days, where I just think about one day, you know, wouldn't it be great if, 
and then there's that dot 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 and i can't actually finish the sentence so you did yeah that. sometimes it's just about taking a leap you know everyone told me i was crazy when i quote unquote threw away my engineering degree so i'm not telling everyone to like run back into the woods and wear buckskins but sometimes you just got to take a little bit of a leap of faith to get moving in the direction you want to go in yeah. Well, people told me I was crazy too. I quit a six-figure compensation financial industry job to make zero dollars for 12 months and to start this entrepreneurial path. I mean, crazy is, of course, contextual. Does it make financial <laughs> sense for you and I to give up a lucrative potential career and make tons of money? Uh, yeah. I mean, sure, we can make lots of money, but why? What's the point? I mean, what, where's that money going to go? Is it going to go into consumption? Is it going to go into preservation? I mean, if I spent all my life busting my hump and not having a family life and being stressed out all the time and not sleeping well and not eating well just so that I can make some money and maybe use it for my own pursuits or maybe hand it down to people who aren't going to appreciate it or who aren't going to use it well, maybe there's a better way. Maybe, yeah. maybe there's a better use <laughs> of, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell other people how to do, but for you and me, the choices that we made, uh, and deciding you didn't want to be in that cubicle. I didn't want to be in that cubicle anymore. It works for lots of people. And that's awesome. If it's working, continue doing it. Uh, but I'm glad that you're crazy and I'm glad that I'm crazy too. It, it feels good to be, it feels good to be crazy, man. I know a lot of miserable, rich people. So that's, if that's your only goal in life, you should find something else to work on. What was this? I'm I'm flashing back to my youth now. Boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy? Is that a song you know? Boom, I don't boom, know that song. Boom, ain't it great to be crazy? <laughs> Silly and foolish all day long. Boom, boom, ain't it? Okay. Man, I'm going to have to look that one up after. It sounds good, though. Yeah, I'll listen to it. <laughs> I'd sing it for longer, but I don't think you want to hear it, nor does anyone who's going to be listening to the conversation want to hear it. Well, Cliff, let's talk real quick. Uh, you've got something awesome that's in the works and I think is actually out there, out in the wild. Uh, your Adventure Out Guide Training and Affiliation Program. Can you hit us with some details yeah. of that? Because I think a lot of folks are going to be interested in this. Absolutely. You know, it's basically kind of like my next step. So I've been running my school and program for a little over a decade now, and I'm finally to the place where I'm able to step back from some of the day-to-day workings of my specific programs in school and focus on bigger picture stuff. And that's what this is. The Adventure Out Guide Training Affiliation Program, I bring people to me. I give them a seminar, a multi-day seminar on how did I start my program and how do I run the business. So it's not really for people who need to learn the outdoor skills. It's for people who have really been immersed in skills and are wanting to turn their outdoor passion and skills. So I train people how to get a business and a program going, how to get up and running, everything from marketing to risk management to insurance and permitting and all that kind of stuff and then set them out to start their own business. I license them the name Adventure Out and let them go out and open their own independently owned business and use our name to get up and running and off the ground. So I'm really, really excited about it and think it's just a great next step for me and, and the school. Yeah. You, you mentioned it. I'm going to have a link to the page on your website to this guide training and affiliation program, but talking about Adventure Out going open source, sharing everything you've learned. Yep. And especially that that's the exactly business what side we're doing, of it, yeah. man, that's such What's a that? drag. The business side of it, it's such a drag 
people it, who love helping and, folks and being outdoors, they do not want to be doing bookkeeping or insurance or risk management behind a laptop inside. So that's cool. That no, that. no. And that's the part I struggled with in the beginning. And my goal is to help people get more over that hump because what we need more of in this world is more more programs like ours out there around the country, around the world, getting people outside and reconnecting with nature. Right on. Right on. Well, hey, um, we had a pretty broad-ranging conversation here, but you want to throw anything else out there? Is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like people to know? I think we pretty much nailed all of it. I'm just really thankful that uh, you got me on the show and that there's people listening to it and hearing what I have to say because that's my mission, to reach more people and get more people outside. So just thank you very much to everyone for listening. Yeah, well, I got to mention one thing, too. So you've got a sweet hookup, uh, 20% off any programs at AdventureOut.com until August 15th, 2015. Um, folks who want to get adva- or take advantage of that, they can use the code VALUEOFSIMPLE at checkout. So, Cliff, thanks for yep. throwing that out there for it. I'm grateful, and I know people who are in your area, and since Adventure Out is expanding sometime soon, uh, maybe they'll be able to get a taste of it wherever they are in the U.S. Maybe even... Are you going to be that's, international? That's the goal someday, hopefully. So we're, uh, we're working on it. But, yeah, everyone go to AdventureOut.com, check out all of our different programs. We also do... Tons of private stuff, so even if you see something you love and it's not in your area, we fly all over the country to bring programs to people. So um, check out the website, adventureout.com, and get in touch. Sweet. Well, people who are turning on their TV, maybe they catch you on the National Geographic channel. If folks want more of you personally, where can they find you online? Me personally, you can either hit me up on my direct website, which is cliffhodges.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cliffhodges. All right. Hey, Cliff, thanks again for having this conversation with me. Uh, Boom, boom, ain't it great to be crazy? That's all I got to say. Maybe we'll wrap it there. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Joel. It was awesome to talk with you. All right. I don't know about you, but... I certainly didn't get a degree in problem solving in college like Cliff did. Uh, A degree in consolidating all my classes into two days and then basically taking the other five days off so I could play video games. Maybe I got that degree. Okay, I I definitely got that degree. Uh, I was closer to moving at the pace of nature back in my college days, but I definitely spend more time out in nature now. Feels good. So what's the one thing you're going to do first after this episode? Go for a hike? Maybe ride your bike to surf some waves? Learn a primitive skill and apply it in the wild? Fired by friction, anyone? Uh, Let me and Cliff know in a comment on the show notes at valueofsimple.com slash SASM080. You certainly can make your first action a visit to adventureout.com for that time-sensitive 20% off promo on Cliff's programs, if you like. This episode is published on August 10th, 2015, and the discount lasts only until August 15th, 2015. So hop to it if you're going to do it and use the code VALUEOFSIMPLE at checkout for your discount. Thanks again, Cliff, for the hookup. That's super rad of you, dude. 
Uh, there's an easy link to Cliff's Adventure Out programs in the show notes if you want it. And again, you can get them at valueofsimple.com slash S-A-S-M-0-8-0. If you're thinking right now, hmm, I wish Joel would give me more links to manually type into my web browser or click on in the show notes. Oh, <laughs> well, I have good news for you. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Simple Rev 2015 event tickets are still available for a little while longer. Come get deep and simple with me and tons of other fantastic, fantastic folks like Joshua Becker, Courtney Carver, Mark and Angel Chernoff, Farnoosh Brock, and many more in Minneapolis on October 2nd and 3rd, 2015. You can snag your pass for the action, connection, and workshops at simplerev.com slash tickets. Also, uh, let's let's see. Uh, how do I put this? Would you like to be my patron on Patreon? No, that didn't sound good. Let me try that again. Would you like to be my patron on Patreon? Patreon's that groovy place where you and I get to expand our relationship, help each other out by making the show better in a lot of ways, and profess our commitment to each other and so I can produce Smart and Simple Matters indefinitely. It's uh, also where I get funky for my patrons, give them free access to things like the audiobook version of Experience Curating, and generally just ooze gratitude like the professional wrestler Razor Ramon used to ooze machismo. You can be my patron or increase your support at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. So was this episode super sweet enough to share it with your friends and family? Was it straight dope enough to warrant writing the brief iTunes review you've been meaning to do because you know how much they mean to me and how much they help others discover the show? If you can't support me now or don't have the resources at the moment, it's cool. Seriously, it's always cool. Just think of me next time you're feeling generous. I really appreciate you. And I feed off the good stuff you send back my way. Thanks for listening to this episode. And remember, you're amazing to me and amazing to more people than you probably know. Go kick some booty out there for you and me today, will ya? And uh, kick some booty tomorrow and, and the next day, the next day, and the next day as well. It's time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski, creator of All Things Value of Simple. <laughs>